We're going to be in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the fifth chapter. So if you have a Bible, do open it to Ephesians chapter 5. And um, as Matt was saying to us last week, it is so helpful to have it open in front of you to be able to follow along with the passage. I'm going to read to you Ephesians 5, verse 3 through to verse 8 today. I want to add my welcome to you all. Um, It's so good to see um, many people finding a home and finding a family here at Grace. Um, I do want to note, by the way, that we, are, we have more or less run out of space in most of our life groups, which is creating a real, bit of a challenge if you're new to joining one. We're absolutely passionate about helping people knit into their family and the church community, but please be patient. Bear with us in that. Um, it's what the staff team call human Tetris, trying to fit people into um, the perfect formation. It doesn't quite work like that, but we're working our hardest. Um, I want to read to you today from Ephesians 5. We're going to read verse 3 through to verse 8. And really, this is a passage that addresses just one theme, as we'll see. It's a very sober and, in many ways, quite a direct challenge to us all. And I want to handle this with some grace and by God's help today, because I think that um, it will expose for many of us some of the resistance in our hearts, as well as a sensitivity to um, some of our failures, I think. And so we need God's help as we read. Let's read the passage and then we'll pray. Paul says this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually or immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Father, as we stepped into your pure light, we've been drawn to you, to your beauty. We've begun to feel something of the wretchedness at times, Lord, of the mess that we have made in our own lives. We pray for the Word of God to be like a scalpel today to work in our hearts, the comfort of the Holy Spirit to bring peace, and ultimately to transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In reading this passage, I think that Paul is not addressing multiple themes. I think he's addressing one theme. And uh, when you open it up, the The first verse that we read, verse 3, he said, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, those are the words that he's using to to open up this, this theme with us. And what he's really speaking about here, of course, is the problem of anything that you we would describe as sexual sin in a person's life or in their heart even. Anything that the Bible would would uh, describe or define as being Um, improper sexually. 
And I say that because although Paul uses three different words here, the word that's translated sexual immorality, the word that's translated impurity, and the word that's translated covetousness, The second and the third words, impurity and covetousness, are sometimes used in the New Testament specifically in relation to sexual sin. So the word impurity occurs in Romans 1, in that famous passage in which Paul describes culture, and culture that has gutted itself of any any, any faith in or adherence to the living God, And how that culture then naturally spirals into and descends into, the word he uses in that passage is impurity. And he he specifies sexual sin there. And of course, it was true in the ancient world. It is true of our world just just the same way, isn't it? You can read Romans 1. It looks like a biography of, of the West over the last century or so. And the second, the third word that he uses there, covetousness, which can be translated greed, is another word, it occurs in, um, it's, it's the word that you hear in the 10th in the commandment, where God says, do not covet. And among other things listed there, he says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't desire to possess sexually what does not belong to you. It's used in the New Testament in that same way to speak about false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2, when he says that these false teachers, their hearts are full of adultery, and he describes them as covetous or greedy, or you can... You can translate it as lustful in the sense of having this desire to possess what does not belong to you. And so it seems to me that what Paul is doing here is he's running hard against this very specific moral, ethical issue to do with our holiness or our godliness. If you want to understand further why he uses these three different terms, you can think of it like this. The first one is just to define the sin. Sexual immorality, which biblically means any form of sexual conduct outside of the marriage union. And of course, marriage in the Bible is between one man and one woman for life, which is the narrowest version of what is proper and appropriate in terms of our sexual behavior. That's the sin. The word impurity describes the effect of transgressing the boundaries of that particular sin. So if we are indulging in sexual behavior outside of the boundaries of marriage or even within our own hearts, the effect is to render you impure. And the third word, covetousness, describes the root from which this particular sin grows. All sins grow from the roots that are deep within our hearts. Of course, sexual sin only ever springs out or is enacted because it ultimately has grown as a poisoned root within the heart, a heart heart of covetousness or lust or of greed to possess that which is not yours. And so what Paul's doing here then is he's, he's going hard against this particular issue in the life of the church community. Now, I wonder why single this issue out And why reserve some of the strongest language that we encounter in the letter, negative language, why reserve that language for this one issue? I think some of you might be forgiven for thinking that this only reinforces your impression that that Christianity is obsessed with this 
the problem of sexual immorality and is deeply anti-sex. And perhaps that the Apostle Paul himself was a frustrated single man who was, who was angry with people who were indulging when he, of course, was exercising self-control. And I forgive you for thinking that if you've been around Grace, just arrived in the last month or so, because we seem to be talking about this a lot. It, came, it was, of course, the theme of our Salt Live event just a couple of weeks ago. And it came up in a sermon just a few weeks ago because of some verses we encountered. But I assure you that that was not in any way orchestrated. It's just the, the nature of walking through sections of the Bible like this. We, we run into themes as and when the Lord guides, and, and this is the one that we are, we've run into today. Paul was not anti-sex. The church may have been at various points in its history. There have been some crazy ideas among Christians. I'll be the first to acknowledge and admit that, that there have been some Christians who have taught some balmy ideas, like that sex is evil, which, of course, is just a prescription for dying out within a generation, isn't it? Let's be honest about that. And, uh, but the but Apostle Paul was not anti-sex, and his, his, uh, his instructions to believers were not, was not to just, just to grit your teeth and exercise self-control um, until you die, he actually, you know, you read his letter to the Corinthians, he says some interesting things there. He says, it's better to marry than to burn. In other words, he's saying, look, it's, if you feel passionate desire, then, then get married. That's the solution. And uh, do so quickly if you can. And he says also in that same letter that married couples shouldn't withhold sexual, um, their sexual rights from one another. Their conjugal rights are that they can exert them on, on each other. The wife can say to the husband, you're mine and I want you. And the husband can say to the wife, you're mine and I want you. And they should not deny each other. So this is not a man who was in any way against the sexual act. It's just that he believed in, in the way that God has put boundaries around this and it's and the narrowness to that, the right way in which it should be enacted. If then we're asking why, why does he then single this out? Why does he speak with this strong language into this particular area of our lives? I think the answer is because of the extraordinary and unique danger of sexual temptation over and above almost all other temptations. And partly that's to do with the power of impropriety or of illicit sex to derail you spiritually. That sex has a power to gut you of any real vitality in your spiritual life faster than just about anything else can do. Think about 1 Corinthians 6, for example, where Paul singles it out again. He says, flee from sexual immorality, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexu the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, which I think you can almost paraphrase in this way and say, all the other sins you commit harm others. Sexual sin seems to have a unique power in that it harms you. Of course, it harms others along with you, but it's, you're sinning against yourself in a profound way, and I think the most obvious way in which a person is sinning against himself is they are destroying their capacity to walk with the Lord in intimacy and closeness. Now, we've seen this in, in the last 70 years or so as the church in Britain has been decimated and emptied largely. And you see how the, the increase in 
what is described as sexual liberty, though I question that as an expression or description, but what is this sexual liberation has gone hand in hand with the secularization or the denial of faith. And most people think that that's because, well, when you become secular, in other words, when you reject God and his standards, then you give yourself to um, freeness and sexual behavior. But actually, very often, in many cases, and the sociologists have noticed this, the effect works, the cause works the other way. When a person transgresses the boundaries of what God has said is his right in terms of their sexual behavior, it has the effect of causing your faith to die to be afflicted with doubts, to grow weak and to grow insipid. And ultimately, then you post-rationalize your actions. You, you, then, you then explain away your faith because you've already enacted things which have brought shame into your life. So it's not that you lost your faith, then you acted out. It's rather that you acted out and then it caused you to lose your faith. And I'll certainly say that this has been my observation and one of the things that has saddened me most over the years as a pastor is I've watched people who seemed at one minute to have a vital and vibrant walk with the Lord, and then they, they are nowhere. They're in a desert. They've walked away from God. And more often than not, in nine cases out of ten, it's because of the desire to act out sexually. And therefore, I don't think that we can overestimate what a sober and important subject this is. And also add into that the fact that we are so immersed in a world that is obsessed with this issue that it's part of the air we breathe, the water we swim in. It was true for them in Ephesus also, by the way, which is why Paul is singling this out. But I think when, when you consider, you know, you, you almost go numb to how prevalent this is. You know, back when I was... A young man, before the law came in, that outlawed smoking inside, um, in, in inside spaces, in, in, in pubs and restaurants, if you went into a restaurant that allowed smoking or if you walked into any pub, you were, you, were, you were inhaling that smoke all through the night. It was hanging in the air. And you'd leave, even if you're not a smoker, with lungs blackened and clothes stinking and hair, every part of you covered with the stench of smoke. And it didn't matter whether you were thinking about it or not, whether you're aware of it or not, whether you chose to breathe or not, it was there all over you, regardless. And that's how I think about the effects of the so-called sexual revolution in the world in which we live. You almost have become numb to it, right? It's very normal that everywhere you walk, the imagery, the standards, the language, everything, means that we are just surrounded by the, the toxic atmosphere of this in a way that has a profound impact upon our ability to walk with Jesus in holiness. And so it seems to me that Really what he's doing here is he's wanting to prepare the Christians. You know, how are they to avoid? How are we to avoid this issue? We cannot avoid it. The only way, I mean, there was a guy in, in the 400s called Simon of Stylites, so named because he stood on a column, a stylite. And he lived on it for about 30 years in the desert in an effort to be closer to God and to rid himself of temptation. I do not advocate that as a realistic method of living out the rest of your Christian life. 
There are times when I wish I could do that, I'll be honest with you, but, but I don't recommend it. There are, there's no way that we can live out our Christian life by extracting ourselves from the world. God has called us to be in the world, to be salt and to be light, which means we have to be equipped. And if there's one area where we have to be on our guard, as it were, it is in this area above all, I believe. So the question we're asking is, well, how can we live in this world and be guarded against the likelihood of falling, of stumbling or of, of destroying or shipwrecking our faith when it comes to our sexual desires? That's the question we're wrestling with. I know that some of you are not believers. I recognize that I'm standing on a different foundation from you in terms of what I believe is appropriate and what you believe is appropriate when it comes to sexual behavior. I don't have time today to fully defend what I think is the, the Christian ethic on this issue. I'll only say this to you. You have standards too. We all have standards when it comes to sex. We all have boundaries. It's not that Christians are bigoted and others are not. All of us have boundaries. The only question is where you draw those boundaries and why. And it seems to me that Unless we're to do with boundaries, to eradicate them altogether, all of us have to have a reason for the boundaries that we've chosen. And I say, well, do you have a good reason for the ones you have? Can you defend them? Can you say that they, are, they, they lead to the flourishing of yourself and of humans in general? Can you say that the world knows what it's doing in this area when our standards shift every other year? And it seems to me that, you know, eventually we're going to end up in, in, in some kind of self-imploding destruction in the West if we carry on the trajectory we're on. And therefore, I would urge you to reconsider. Now, I want to ask this question then. Well, how can we live in this world? You want to follow Jesus. Your heart is for him. How can we live in this world? And this is the question that Paul is answering. And I'm going to give you a few answers. The first thing he says is this. Christian, don't normalize sexual sin. Don't normalize it. Here's what I mean. Look at this verse 3 and 4. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Don't talk about these things. Don't joke about these things. Now, it, it feels a little bit reading this that like, this is just grist for the mill of our critics. You know, this is the worst version of puritanical faith, right? Or Victorian ethics. That, that this is Paul at his most prudish and his most pharisaical. Being a prude because prudes are those who seem to to look down their noses at everyone else and everyone else is having fun, like that auntie you have that never laughs at anyone's jokes and just looks disapproving at everybody in the room. And maybe the Apostle Paul's slightly, got a slightly sour look on his face. He's like, what, all you Christians having fun? Let's not have fun. We need to just be serious all the time. Or, or maybe he's, he's sort of calling on his pharisaical roots. You know, the Pharisees were known. If you imagine the boundaries of morality as being like a cliff edge, they were so concerned not to fall over the cliff edge, they built fences a mile away from the cliff edge. 
in order to be extra cautious and careful. And here's Paul building a fence saying, you can't even talk about these things. Let's not joke about these things because if the cliff's over there, I don't want you getting anywhere near there. And you could dismiss him for that reason. You know, this is just Paul the Pharisee coming out. He had grown up as a Pharisee. The Talmud describes different groups of Pharisees, and one of the groups was called the bleeding Pharisees because they were so concerned not to, um, to allow lust to grow in their hearts that they walk around with their eyes closed and they walk into walls and cause themselves to bleed. I'm not making this stuff up. It's genuinely. And he obviously knew these guys, and so is Paul just, just bringing this back to mind, the, you know, this way this, of living out your ethics, and I don't think that's true, fair to him at all. What he's saying here is much more subtle and much more wise than maybe you can give him credit for at first. Consider, consider. Consider how words can awaken appetites. You know, if I, if I took a few minutes to describe to you my favorite meal that my wife and I often love to prepare um, when we have a special occasion or a date night where C will... She'll find a selection of beautiful cheeses and create the perfect mac and cheese. She'll saute some finely sliced cabbage in a pan slowly with butter and garlic. And then I will light up the barbecue and sear two thick ribeye steaks until they're medium rare, nicely browned on the outside. And if I talk about this for long enough, some of you, I've lost you already. Your, your appetites are beginning to awaken. There's no way you can tune back into what I'm saying because you feel hungry. Words awaken appetites. If your friend describes to you, you know, some of their recent travels with a smile on their face, flashing photos of wonderful turquoise sea and beautiful mountains and these kinds of things, desire begins to awaken in your heart. Words awaken appetites. And it seems to me that that's true, of course, when it comes to the things that we speak about when it, as it pertains to sexual conduct and desire. So Paul isn't being overly cautious here. He has a very sober and serious understanding of the power of language and of what we tolerate. And not only do words awaken appetites, but they also have the, the, the effect of normalizing what you once thought was unthinkable. I mean, take veganism, for example. You know, when I was growing up, and think, for example, my mid-teens throughout the, you know, the mid-90s, I didn't know any vegans. They weren't around. The only vegan I'd ever heard of was Carl Lewis, the Olympic athlete who in the 1980s had won a number of races. And, you know, people, people explained it and said, look, it's because he's a vegan. Well, that may be true, but he was also doping. So we'll just leave that to one side. <laughs> but now, the, the, you know, so once upon a time, we thought of it as something slightly eccentric, intriguing, strange, interesting. Now it's, it's so normalized that the judgment now flows in the other direction. If you, you know, I, and I think the, the direction of travel we're moving in culturally is eventually that we're going to end up at a point where you eat meat, you're, you're equivalent to a murderer. Some people already make that claim. So how, how do we change? How do these shifts happen in our minds? Well, they happen because we, the way we talk. It's just language. Language has an effect on us as humans, and a lot of that's unconscious. You don't rationally engage with the arguments and the debates. You're just affected by them all the time. How else do you explain the the, the extraordinary transfa transformation of Western culture as it pertains to sexual ethics over the last, just even the last 20 years, never mind the last 70 years, well, because of how we talk. And so it seems to me, look, you can think back to your own childhood, many of you, and your innocence was most likely shattered in this respect 
by listening to the conversations of friends at school. There may have been other things that, that contributed to it, but for many, it was those conversations that awoken curiosity and appetites that weren't even there before. And suddenly, words like seeds go into the heart and begin to put down roots and, bear, and grow shoots. And before you know it, your heart's overcome with these desires. Now, it seems to me then what Paul is saying is, it's not enough for him just to come in and say, don't practice these things. He's saying as Christians, we need to have, we need to develop or to be resensitized to the way God thinks and feels about these issues. So that first of all, we watch the way we speak. Jesus said, didn't he, that it's out of the mouth that the heart is expressed. He put it like this in Matthew chapter um, in Matthew chapter 15, he said, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So if you want to know what's going on in someone's heart, just watch the way they speak. Your words are a diagnostic of your heart. So watch what's coming out of your heart and pay attention, out of your mouth, pay attention to it, and you'll understand better what's going on inside. But of course, the reason why Paul says this to us communally, don't let these things be named among you, don't joke about these things, is not just because he's concerned with what's coming out of you, but he's also concerned with what's going into you by way of your ears and your eyes. Pay attention to what you listen to, to what you see, to what you read, is the principle, I think, underlying what Paul is saying here. Because so easily our hearts are overcome, so easily, by what we pay attention to. And your defenses are eroded and corroded and destroyed. And before long, the lusts that, that, that were weak and small inside of you grow powerful and they overcome you. That is the extraordinary way in which sin grows within us rapidly if we don't kill it ruthlessly. He says, don't normalize sexual sin. The next thing he says is don't excuse it either. Now look at verse 5. I want you to pay careful attention to this. We need to think carefully about what he says here. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous He's echoing what he said earlier, the same list of words. Anyone who is these things, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, if you sit with what Paul is saying here for a moment or two, you'll realize that this is the starkest, most shocking and frightening warning you could encounter on these issues. This word inheritance is key. It's the same word he's already used in this letter in the first chapter when he describes what it means to be a Christian. He said, for example, in chapter 1, verse 14, that the Holy Spirit has been given to you if you're a believer as a guarantee of your inheritance until you acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
The Holy Spirit's given to you as a down payment before you inherit everything that God has for you as a child, of, as his child in eternity. He says it again later in that chapter in verse 18. He's praying that you may be enlightened to know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So I think when the New Testament uses this word inheritance in almost every case, and certainly here in this letter, what it's describing is your salvation. That you possess Christ. That because you possess Christ, you've been gifted eternal life. And that Christ has given you his righteousness and the, the, the treasure that is yours as a child of God and that can never be taken away from you. That's the language of inheritance in the scripture. It is nothing other than the language of salvation. It's the same thing. To have an inheritance is to be saved. So what is he doing here then? When he says that such a person who's given themselves to sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, that they have no inheritance. He's saying the most sobering warning possible to you who call yourself a Christian that your, may, your behavior may reveal that you are not saved at all. Now, this raises some very important questions for us. It raises the question, first of all, is Paul saying that you can lose your salvation, that, that you can become part of the family of God, be gifted righteousness in Christ, and then you can lose it? I don't think that's what he's saying at all. Remember, the language that he used in the first chapter when he says that God called us from before the foundation of the world, that he's guaranteed our inheritance, that we are his possession. The language Paul uses there and elsewhere in the New Testament is of this ironclad promise of God that when he sets his heart upon you, when he chooses you, when he calls you, you belong to him and there is nothing that can take you from his grip. So then well, what does he mean here when he says that the sexually immoral, the impure, the covetousness have no inheritance. And I think what he's saying here is this. That our sexual sin may prove that you were never a believer to begin with. In other words, he's wanting to blow away the smoke of self-deception. The way that we can lie to ourselves to imagine that we're safe with Christ and free to continue on in the lifestyle that you know is contrary to his will. And that is self-deceit and Paul's trying to blow it away. Clear the air. Help you to see clearly, understand where you are with Christ. It's a diagnostic. It's not unique either to this particular passage. It's, I could read you a number of places in his letters where he says the exact same thing, but here's one of them in Galatians 5. He says, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and so on. And he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what he's saying here is that your behavior may reveal that you never knew Jesus. 
Now, of course, none of us are perfect. And all of us will sin sexually in some way, even if it's only in the heart. So then the question arises, well, how much sin reveals that you are not saved? And that's not a question I can answer because I don't think it's the right question to ask. I don't think the question is, well, there's a certain amount of sin which disqualifies you and a certain amount you can get away with. This is really about the orientation of your life. It's about whether you are fundamentally committed to indulging your own desires against the will of Jesus or whether you're fundamentally wanting to repent of them and pursue and possess Christ. And that takes some subtlety and spiritual insight and knowledge and reflection to know what is true of you. But friend, you must not rush over that question. You see, what Paul's saying here all makes a lot more sense when we see this little word he's added here when he says, the sexually immoral, the impure, the covetous, that is an idolater. When we understand everything that he's saying about this through the lens of idolatry, everything begins to make sense. Why he can speak so harshly and strongly and powerfully and soberly against this particular issue. Think of it like this. Many people admire Jesus and therefore call themselves Christians. I'm reckoning that most people in this room are admirers of Jesus. But Jesus was never interested in calling people to become his admirers. When Jesus called people to be his disciples, the demands he made were absolute. He called for total trust or faith in him. He called for death to yourself. He called for absolute commitment to obedience and the, and, the, and the desire to follow him and to make him your own and to love him ultimately with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and so to live a life of worship to him. Jesus said it is all or nothing. When you choose anything, over Christ. That is something you love more than him. And so, perhaps in this area, more clearly than any other area of our lives, I think it can be true of other aspects of our lives, in this area of sexual morality, to persistently refuse to let go, refuse to repent, is effectively a denial of Christ. Because you are saying to Jesus, you can't satisfy me. You cannot complete me. You cannot save me. I can only be saved by enacting my desires. And so you're saying, in effect, you're confessing your belief in another God. You're saying, I need you. I can't do without you. I won't let go of you. I can't imagine life without you. And it seems to me that what we have here is the most violent form of opposition that can take place within 
the context of the human heart because Christ is totally opposed to idols. You remember how he put it in Matthew chapter 6 when he said, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now there he applied it by saying you cannot serve God and money. He says that it's not possible to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and also to let money take the, your throne in your heart. But of course the principle that the worship of Christ is incompatible with any form of idolatry applies just as much in the arena of our sexual desires and conduct. And Christ says, I want to be everything to you. And to possess me is to renounce your faith in other gods, which is not only a matter of your heart's inclination, it begins there, but also then of your actions. Because your actions reveal where your faith truly lies. Are you a worshiper of Christ or of Eros? Don't normalize it. Don't excuse it. And finally, he says, don't minimize sexual sin. The sixth verse, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, when I use the language of minimizing, what I mean here is that we are doing a couple of things. On the one hand, we are looking at the sin and saying, look, it's not as bad as we've been told. Or perhaps we're changing the definition of sin altogether. We're saying, look, God isn't really against this. That was just... That was just um, an unenlightened age, the bigoted origins of Christianity, but ultimately God was, was, was always about expanding, broadening the tent to in, incorporate all kinds of sexual behavior. And so we minimize the problem, and we also minimize the danger. We say, look, God is a God of love and of grace. And so he will, he will obviously overlook this. You don't need to be anxious, you don't need to fret. God's grace can cover it. Now, of course, this kind of approach to sexual morality is rife these days, not just outside the church, but even inside the church. There are many churches that actively go out of their way to describe and advertise themselves using the language of inclusivity, for example, as a way of communicating without saying it in black and white, but a way of communicating through, through the, the kind of the double speak of language that we're a church that doesn't ever judge you on the basis of your lifestyle because Christ is for everyone. And it seems to me that, you know, all that is is a desperate attempt by dying churches to hang on to some form of success in a world that has long since turned its back on God. Now, I want to be clear. The gospel is wonderfully inclusive. And I understand that to mean that Christ will turn away no one who comes to him and says, Lord, forgive me of my sin. I want you. He will turn no one away, no matter how 
chaotic, dark your background has been, no matter what a mess you've made of your life, no matter what's been done to you, if you come to Jesus like that, he will have you in a heartbeat and you'll be his for eternity. That is the heart of Christ. That is the gospel we preach. But listen to me carefully, friends. That measure of inclusivity was purchased by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He bled and shed his blood in order to make you clean, in order to bring you in, in order to call you friend, in order to bring you into his family. And nobody can approach the Lord Jesus and say to the one who hung on the cross, endured agony and pain, no one can say to him, forgive me, Lord, and let me keep hold of this, this precious sin that I'm cherishing in my heart. It's not possible to love the Lord and to love your sin at the same time. So this is why Paul says about this. He says, first of all, it's a lie. Don't listen to those people who call themselves Christians and then try to convince you that this is not a problem. They're liars. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. It's not just a lie, but it's a demonic lie. It's the original lie. It's the lie the serpent uttered to Adam and Eve in the garden. When he came to them and began to distort and twist the word of God, they knew what was right, they knew what was wrong, but he comes and brings doubt. He says, did God really say? And as they entertain the question, they get wrapped up, first of all, in doubt, which quickly gives way to the decision to indulge. And that is exactly the same playbook Satan has been running ever since. So when you encounter Christians and churches who are convinced and convincing on this issue, they say, listen, of course the Bible's outdated. And we can adjust its teaching to fit with the more enlightened days in which we live. Understand that that is a demonic and satanic lie. And not only is it a lie, he says, but it's also a deadly lie. He says, don't listen to them, they're empty deceivers, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. My dear friend, to be a Christian is to come to a fork in the road and understand that there is a choice that lies before you. In this area of your life as well as in every other area of your life. That one path at that junction, the one path is to say, I'm going to keep hold of my sin. And ultimately what Paul says is that all the anger of God will fall upon you. And the other path of the road is to say, take away my sin. Take away my sin and let it be dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. That's why Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for our sake, 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He says, the Father laid upon the Son, laid upon Jesus, the mess and filth and sin and lust of the world so that Christ became sin. When he was hanging on the cross, he became pornography, he became lust, he became fornication, he became adultery, he became incest, he became pedophilia, he became all of these things when he was hanging on the cross. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that the transfer could be enacted. So that he could take the wickedness and drain the poison out of your life and be punished for it and absorb the wrath of God against that sin completely in himself on that tree. And you can walk away through no deserving of your own with the label righteous, clean, pure, loved, holy, saved, alive. This is what Paul says here. When at the end of our passage he says, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. At one time your life was tainted by confusion, a sense of dirtiness, a sense of shame, the filth that clung to you like the smoke in the air. And he says, now you are light. You're free. You're unashamed. You're loved and called. And the response, friends, is a response that every single one of us needs to make in our hearts at this moment. All of us. It's a response that you need to make every day and every moment of the day, which is this. I choose Jesus. I choose you, Lord. I choose you against the temptations that want to tell me that I need this to be fulfilled. To live my best life. I choose this over against the raging desires I feel. Understanding that those desires can never know satisfaction through indulgence. They must be exhausted in you. And find my true joy in the beloved. My brothers and sisters, we're going to take communion in a moment. And I understand there's, there's a seriousness and a heaviness to the moment we're in. And I don't think that any of us should not pause to reflect and consider, do you want Jesus more right now? Do you want him more? I don't think it's possible to eat the bread and drink the wine unless your heart says yes to that. So let that be the test. Can you eat the bread? Can you drink the wine? Of course, to come to the table is to come to the table of grace in which even if your mess has clung to you until this very moment, now you can change. Now you can say, I let go. So eat and so drink in order to enact your love and your commitment and your repentance 
and the receiving of the grace and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ right now.